Hello and welcome to Jorgensen's Soundbox, a sandbox of sounds. I'm very excited to be starting a podcast and finding new ways to bring pleasure to your ears. Uh, I'll tell you a little more about my plans for this podcast channel at the end of the episode. Um, But right now, I just want to put a bow on your experience with the Almanac. Um, Whether you were kind of listening to the audio version that just preceded this, uh, reading the book or the free version on the website, I just really, I really appreciate you being a part of this, Um, reading, enjoying, sharing, um, means a ton to me and has given a lot of, um, given me a lot of gratitude for the work, um, of the last couple of years. So, uh, I appreciate that. I hope you enjoy this episode. I plan to share a little bit about the impact of the Navalmanac so far. Um, talk a little bit about what's coming next. I'll answer some questions I got from Twitter, um, explore the nuance of a few of my personal favorite passages and, uh, finally share what you can expect next to come on this podcast. I'm recording this on a beautiful day, um, sitting outside. I hear the I hear the birds and uh, the waves in the background. I hope you pick up some of that as well. And uh, you're having a, a nice, relaxing day. So I, I get some questions about the results um, and the impact that, that the Almanacs had. Um, I just want to kind of say, like, thank you to everybody who's made this possible. Um, we're, we're, into the tens of thousands of copies sold um, across kind of all the formats. I have to kind of estimate on the readership of the free version between the PDF and the website and what gets shared. And I, I think we're, it's it's not a stretch to say we're over, well over a million readers of the various uh, free versions. And I mean, the email list alone on the book website is, is over 10,000 people. Um, and I share new material there and photos from uh, readers and answer questions and share new blog posts and updates on stuff that Naval has shared and is working on. So um, we're kind of building a great community around this book that continues well beyond, um, you know, just, just what's between the covers. I also get a ton of questions about translations. Um, it was one of the things I was, I was like not expecting actually. And the DMs and emails started kind of coming in hot and heavy um, as soon as the book got released about translations and translation rights. So I've been working with an amazing foreign rights agent um, who's taking care of all this, Marlene. And we have contracts signed in more than 10 languages. um, And we're still in discussions with a bunch of other other publishers. Um, So I'll give you the list of contracts are already signed. Um, and I think only, I think only Italian, um, is already published and available, but we'll have versions coming in Arabic, German, Korean, Marathi, Hindi, Telugu, Polish, simplified Chinese, Turkish, and Spanish, both in audio and in text formats. Um, so that's the list as of today. We'll have I think more languages, um, as we finish up, um, other conversations and come to agreements with other publishers. And just like the original, all of these publishers, which I'm, I'm just blown away by have agreed to make their translations free and publicly available as well. Um, so as those get created, I will link out to those from Navalmanac.com. So all those translations will be available to all of you as well. 
So let's get into some some common questions uh, from the book. So I, I just tweeted the other day and and uh, asked people if there's stuff that hadn't been ap- answered yet in in other episodes or other uh, podcasts that I've done. And the first one uh, was from Adam Lorton. So were there any themes or questions you ended up discarding? What were they and why? And the the answer is a long list. Um, the original oh, manuscript was like hundreds more pages. Um, and really that was because I just created, I just took all of Naval's work and categorized it, right? So I, I wasn't really like editing things out as I went originally. So I had a, you know, a whole long set of pages on his thoughts about how to build startups or investing or angel investing specifically, um, predictions about the future. There was the whole kind of story of AngelList. Um, and it was really, um, it was really through adding some of those constraints, uh, around like the size that we wanted to aim for, um, that I started having to trim a lot of those. And, I really struggled with making some of those big cuts. I mean, when you've got months of work into, you know, chapters and sections, it's painful to feel like you're just, you know, putting a torch to that. Um, it got a lot easier when I realized, like, which in retrospect is a very obvious thought, but when I realized I could just publish them on the website and still share them and people could still access them and benefit from them. So, if, you, if all you've done so far is, is read the book or read the PDF, um, check out Navalmanac.com because there's a bunch of secret sections there. And that's that was just what I called the stuff that had to get cut from the uh, core of the book. Uh, but there's a lot there. And, you know, what I found in kind of my early f- interviews of, of peer readers and reviewers is everybody loved the sections on wealth and happiness. And they liked one maybe of those extra kind of sections. Um, and so it just started to get a little bit more niche. You know, one person's interested in education, one person's interested in investing, one person's interested in, um, you know, how to build a startup for themselves. And I, I didn't want to have a book where people were losing momentum, like halfway through that they loved the first half and, never finished it and didn't feel great about it because they kind of felt like they gave up on the book rather than powered through the end, really loved it and went looking for more. So the, the website has a lot of, of what had to get cut and you can kind of see some of those, um, some of those decisions. The other constraint I added really that, that helped make those, those cuts easier were, were the, the, the focus on evergreen ideas. Um, so I really wanted this book to be as useful and relevant in 10 years as it is today. Um, and we'll all, we'll all be fortunate if it's as useful in a hundred years. Um, I think especially in the happiness section, there are truly some timeless truths and, you know, the people that Naval's has pulled lessons from are already hundreds or thousands of years old. So, you know, those aren't going out of date anytime soon. Um, and I believe really the, the principles around, the wealth building are also pretty timeless. Um, you know, some of the examples might feel a little dated in, in 20 years, um, but maybe not. And maybe, um, you know, those things will be upheld even more. So um, there's a lot that got cut to answer your original question, Adam. Um, I didn't really trash anything. I tried to repurpose it and I tried to share it and let people decide for themselves, you know, what they were interested in and, and still put it out there for them. 
Okay, next question um, from at Troy Hollings. Um, he asks, I'd love to hear more about, quote, owning a piece of a business. Assuming I can't easily invest in startups, I read this as investing in assets that appreciate and grow while you sleep. So farmland, rental properties, the regular stock market would count? End of Troy's question. Um, short answer, yes, I think so. Um, I really liked this idea because it gave me a, a very clear goal. Um, and it gave me a clear goal. You know, Naval says early on in that that um, how to build wealth tweet storm. Um, don't don't chase money, chase wealth. Um, it's a very natural question to ask, like, okay, so what's wealth? And wealth defi- he defines it as assets that earn while you sleep. And that's a, a pretty big world. Um and still even a little vague, right? Like you might have one or two specific examples um, that come to mind for you right away. But there's a lot of options out there for things that are assets that are in while you sleep. And so the the idea of focusing on building or buying equity um, really clarified that for me. So that that's it's one of the versions of how to build or how to accumulate assets that are in while you sleep. There are plenty of others. But equity is a really clear, clear goal to shoot for. Um, and there's a lot of ways to achieve it. So even though there are some other assets, like Troy mentions here, like you know, rental properties that aren't necessarily equity specifically, um, just focusing on the world of equity, we can look at, you know, kind of from one um, one side of the gradient to the other. We've got starting your own business, right? You could go incorporate your own business today, own 100% of it, and now you own 100% equity of this business. And what your business does and how it makes money may be yet to be determined, um, but that's okay. You own the upside of this business and you can start getting to work on on earning your, building your business and making that equity valuable. Um, it's a great thought experiment, even if nothing else. And it's something that, uh, Sky King and I actually talk about a fair bit in our episode, which is going to be coming very shortly to you on this channel. Um, other ways to get equity, co-founding a small business, um, or joining a small business with the expectation of equity, joining a startup, um, and getting stock options. So those stock options aren't equity (laughs) specifically of themselves. It's a little more nuanced legally than that, but that's a good way to do it. Investing in startups um, and yes, investing in the stock market. So I think maybe the most openly accessible way to get equity is just a stock market index. So you can take even 50 bucks or 10 bucks um, out of each paycheck and start putting it into the stock market um, in a retirement account or in your personal account. And that is you accumulating equity. Um, so you should feel good about every time you're putting some money to work, um, you, you are accumulating assets that are working for you, um, working while you sleep. It doesn't have to be as big as saving up a ton of money, taking a big risk on one rental property. Um, you know, You can buy into a lot of these equity positions slowly and you can earn your way into them with your time if you don't have the cash to deploy yet. Um, I, Troy, I hope that answers some of that question. I think that's a good, um, it's a good place to focus, and it's good to realize the breadth of options that are available to you to accomplish that. Um, and whatever your constraint is, whether it's cash or time or 
um, access, there are still ways that you can progress towards accumulating equity. Um, definitely don't don't think that equity is the only only way to do it because there are other ways to access assets. Um, but that's a really good way to focus, and there's plenty to keep you busy uh, in the the practice of accumulating equity. Okay, another question um, from Joe Jufray. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize, but we will soldier on. Um, he asks, if you had to do it again, what would you do differently? Um, I, I struggled this, with this question a little bit. I, I don't think I'd change anything within the book itself. Um, now, that's either like super ignorant or kind of amazing, um, but it's only been 10 months since we, we published the book and launched it. Um, of course, Naval, you know, continues to share amazing stuff on his Twitter and podcast and all the time. So, um, on the one hand, I could be updating it constantly and, uh, you know, it may turn out to be a really good idea to update this thing, you know, a few years or many years into the future, um, with a, you know, an expanded and updated version. Um, it's something to, uh, to keep in mind. I learned a ton about the process of creating a book. Um, overall. So I, I bumped into a lot of walls in this particular maze, uh, some painfully so. And sometimes I just sat down in the maze and looked sad for a little bit while I was trying to work my way through it. I, so I learned a lot about what I would do differently process wise. Um, you know, I definitely learned kind of what it is so helpful to even know what the final form looks like, right? So I now know, you know, all of the components that go into it and what the kind of limits and parameters are and um, how much an, a copy editor and line editor really helps. So, um, you know, going into my next book, one, I will know the pieces that I have to fill in much more clearly. Um, I'll have a little bit better sense of the cadence of the kind of work and like when you can just push through, um, you know, and, and just put long hours in and when you need to kind of let the dust settle and get your creative uh, vision readjusted. Um, I'll also know where and how I can lean on editors a little more. Um, you know, Kathleen Martin was was an amazing line editor in this book and helped a ton. And I really, I spent a lot of time obsessing over like grammar and structure and spelling correctness when I I'm not an expert in that and I didn't really need to be. Um, but I kind of tried to do my very best on that and put a lot of work into it. Um, and then when I started working with her later, realized how much you can lean on an expert and let them, let them take care of some of that for you. Um, so I would, I would just shift some of that effort, um, next time around. Uh, and on the, on the publication side, uh, if I got to do it all over again, I, I would put more effort into the initial launch. Um, you know, I know it's only one or two days in the big scheme of things, and it's it's really not what determines success in the long run of a book. Um, there's so much, it, so much more about the quality of the book matters than than the launch. Um, but I worked for years on this book and making it excellent and just due to life circumstances, basically I was pulled in a lot of different directions at the time of the launch. So I didn't really get to put maximum effort into a well-coordinated launch. Um, I put, you know, I, I got to plan for maybe three or four weeks. Um, when really, you know, if you've been working on something for three years, you should probably be planning the launch for 
you know, six to 12 months and maybe more and just equal, equal that effort out a little bit. Um, given the situation, you know, I, I don't have any regrets, but, um, as I look for the next project, it's something that I, I definitely keep in mind. Um, you know, I obsess so much about the product and the book itself that I, and I could have been a little more patient in planning around the launch. Um, it all worked out. Okay. You know, no, no regrets, no complaints, but, um, you know, since, since you asked what I do differently, that's something that, uh, that came up as I was wrestling with that question. Um, I, I got a few questions kind of broadly about the creative process. Um, for that, I've done some pretty comprehensive interviews. Um, Jay Klaus's podcast, Creative Elements, um, you know, he does really exceptional kind of dissections of creators and their work. And we talked a lot about process on that. Um, David Prell's North Star podcast, he asked a lot of good questions about that as, you know, a writing coach and instructor. So I feel like we covered that pretty well on some other podcasts. Um, so I don't want to go too, too deep into that now. Um, but one of the things, um, you know, the, and a constant question, uh, that I have answered hopefully in some detail here, or I'm about to is, you know, what are the ideas that resonated with you the most? What are the things that stick? Um, what jumped out to you? And I feel so lucky to have been able to spend three years like swimming around in all this material. Um, cause it, it really let me marinate in a lot of this and, you know, become, get my thinking very flavored by Naval, um, to continue a metaphor that probably shouldn't be continued. So, I just want to go through maybe some of the, um, some of the things I think are lesser appreciated, but that like really had an impact on me. So, you know, the highlights are the highlights. Um, and, and I think a lot of people managed to pull out some of the, the obvious kind of evergreen truths. Um, so I'll, I'll go through a little bit of excerpts here that are, that I think people gloss over, um, or that are underappreciated in, in some of the other conversations I've had with readers. So this one is from the education section. That's one of those uh, secret sections uh, that's published, that was cut from the original book, um, but is published on the website. And I really love, this is a passage about a thought experiment. And I really love, um, it, it just changed so much. I've always thought education was important, but it changed the, how vividly I could imagine the outcome of an improved educational system. Um, so let me get into the, the quote here, this, this thought experiment. Assume everyone in the world had maximum practical knowledge. Everyone could go create hardware and robots. Everyone could go write code. Everyone could invest money and we could all do mathematics. If we were all maximally educated, then what happens? I think within five years, robots would be doing all the manual labor and we will all be doing creative work. We would essentially all be wealthy. We'd have figured out how to program machines and use technology to do everything we need to do other than the creative work. At that point, we would either be furthering science, technology, and inventing things, or doing creative work for each other. There are a small number of truly zero-sum games. Most of the things we care about, cars, houses, clean water, air travel, all those things are not zero-sum. Those are positive-sum games. And we can get really, really, really far with automation, end quote. So 
there, as I think about this and think about the kind of uh, first principles, you know, metaphor of physics, like what are the, what's stopping us from having a maximally educated society? Um, is it a, is it a resource constraint? Is it a skill constraint? Is it, uh, you know, there, there's nothing in the laws of physics that's stopping us from having a maximally educated society. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, there's enough food on the planet for everyone. It's just a distribution problem. There's enough education for everyone on the planet. Um, and, and it's a distribution problem. And as the cost of distributing information falls so drastically, um, certainly much faster than the price of distributing food, um, that I don't see, you know, it's a hard problem, but it's not an impossible problem. And given the impact that solving the problem would have, um, it really energizes me around improving our distribution of information, our distribution, our, our the ability to educate people. Um, and there's some amazing companies uh, working on this and some very wonderful visions um, of the space. You know, and you hear the quote thrown around a lot, like talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. Um, and I think the same of, of valuable information and education. Uh, there's, th that's just such an exciting vision. Um, and the more we can educate people and allow, or, or even give them the tools for self-education, right? Um, the more impact we're going to see and those innovations and improvements are going to diffuse increasingly quickly um, around the world. So, you know, I've always believed um, that education could be doing better and could be doing more. And, um, and I do believe that over multiple generations, solving education and improving education is actually one of the highest leverage ways to accelerate the progress of the human species. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world today and there's a lot of ways to improve it. Um, you know, we want to go to Mars. We want to cure cancer. We want to extend life. Um, we want teleportation. We want time travel. We want, but education is a very, very heavily weighted variable on the front end of getting access to all of those things. So, so working on education, I, I just imagine that like we as a species cannot work too hard on, on education, on educating each other, on making information available and freely accessible. Um, and as the rate of education increases, the rate of scientific innovation and invention and all of these things that are upstream of incredible lifestyle and safety and abundance, um, you know, education kind of precedes all of those uh, and can accelerate all of them. And this gave me a really clear way to think about it. So um, that's a personal kind of obsession of mine. And this clicked into that incredibly well. Um, I really love working on this and uh, thinking more about education. If that resonates with you, like DM me, email me, tweet me, let's, um, let's have that conversation because I think that's so exciting. And I think that's going to change a lot in, in our um, lifespans. You know, the, the methods of education are going to change drastically and we'll start to see the outcomes of that over, over a long period of time. Another, another section uh, that I thought was underrated um, 
and this came out late, so so maybe this is on me. I had a really hard time cutting the story of Angelist uh, from the book, and I was late to publish it on the website and because I I thought it was going to drop like a nuclear bomb and everybody was going to be really excited about it, um, and maybe maybe I waited too long. But I thought uh, it, this is the kind of story I obsess over, so maybe this is just more more appealing to me than um, than other people. But I really love to see stories of great companies built, especially when you can see the roots they grew from in the founder's life. And Angelist is an amazing example of this. So the whole story, it's, it's on the website now in the secret sections, um, and you can read all of it. And I, I don't want to uh, try to rehash it here in, in short form and uh, shortchange the, the impact of the story. Um, but hopefully this this teaser trailer is enough to get you excited about it and to to go read it. Naval had a really interesting and, and somewhat kind of turbulent um, first maybe 10 years or so in Silicon Valley. And with those cuts and bruises came some very valuable lessons and some very unique insights. And he that misfortune um, became a skill set. Uh, became a specific knowledge and drove him to learn an incredible amount about, you know, term sheets and venture capital and the game theory behind raising capital and all of the very technical legal terms that are involved in these negotiations and when founders are going to have a good outcome and when they're not and, you know, the different methods that venture capitalists use to, you know, protect themselves and their LPs, uh, sometimes at the cost of entrepreneurs, but sometimes not. The different classes of stock and how the same, you know, if there's four founders, how some founders can have different ultimate outcomes, even though they all were equal co-founders originally of the same company. Um, And those are hard-won lessons. And Naval took those and, you know, what became his specific knowledge and then started very generously blogging about it and sharing it. And that was on the blog Venture Hacks. Um, he and his partner, Nivy started a blog, started to very generously help founders, help them learn the ropes of fundraising, You know, shared everything he knew in this 10-page PDF that's still floating around out there on the internet, I believe. And that became the that goodwill um, and that expect, expertise and that ability to put out his specific knowledge um, under his own name, with accountability, uh, became kind of the clout with which he launched an email list um, called AngelList. And originally, it was you know just like Craigslist; it was a, just an email list. And he started put a few dozen people on it and started sending out opportunities uh, of companies that were fundraising. Uber was actually one of the very early companies that was shared on AngelList. Um, I think before it was even a website, but started to. Uh, use increased leverage, um, e- new email lists, expanding impact, expanding um, kind of the reach and adding people both on the company side and the investor side to start kind of bringing together those resources and brokering those deals. Um, when he saw traction and success at the email list, he hired software developers and started to build a platform and a product. As that started to add, uh, get more traction and show results, he started to build some 
workflows that automated some of the paperwork and made it easier to invest on AngelList than off AngelList. And then he already had this kind of critical mass of startups. And so he added a talent section. And so now not only is the platform growing, but he's adding new um, new products, new offerings, eventually adding new companies, uh, acquiring product hunts. And, you know, the, the AngelList family of companies now is pretty robust. Um, it involves some crowdfunding tools like Republic, um, CoinList. It involves AngelList Talent, AngelList Venture. Um, product Hunt still is, is growing and um, as a new CEO after that acquisition. So AngelList is a, um, we tend to not think about it as a the story behind it, even though it's pervasive in Silicon Valley, but it's an incredible story and it's a great um you know, it was a very scrappy kind of step-by-step, very methodical, started small, didn't raise for a long time, showed traction, added leverage, grew very naturally out of Naval's life experience and specific knowledge. And um, I think there's a lot to, to learn from that, especially from people who now follow Naval and, and have read the book and see the frameworks that he puts forth. You know, what could be better than looking at his own experience and trying to apply the framework that he generated to the story of his life and see what you can, what you can learn from that. So a few other, uh, favorite ideas here. Um, another passage, this, we got, we got to touch some happiness. Um, we've been all business, all work and no play. Let's, let's find some happiness. Um, this, the fundamental problem, uh, behind happiness, I thought it was a really interesting one. And, I'll read the passage in a second, um, but I think it's it's funny to set up, especially as a transition. Uh, I remember hearing Naval say a long time ago, like somebody asked him if he was happy. Um, I, I hope this isn't a misquote, but I think I remember something along the lines of like happiness is a Western delusion or, or something along those lines. Um, the quote that I remember from the book is just that he used to not value happiness. And the transition that he went through is someone asking him, you know, you clearly think of yourself as as smart. Um, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? And so he very methodically started studying happiness and where it comes from and what creates it and finding uh, answers in some very old texts and old places, especially kind of some of the Eastern writings. And it, it, most of the things that I learned um, or that are the first lessons were, were the blockers to happiness, right? Like what are the things that you're doing that are interfering with your own happiness, assuming that a very natural state is happy, just like your natural state is healthy. Um, and you do more things to impede your health and to impede your happiness than you do to support it. Um, so looking for things to subtract rather than add. Um, so one of those is, this passage that uh, that I'm about to read, and it's a very kind of overarching um, prescription, maybe for for uh, observing what the blockers to your happiness are. So here we go. The idea that you're going to change something in the outside world, and that is going to bring you the peace, everlasting joy, and happiness you deserve, is a fundamental delusion we all suffer from, including me. The mistake over and over and over is to say, oh, I'll be happy when I get that thing, whatever it is. That is a fundamental mistake we all make 24-7 all day long, end quote. Um, 
in the outside world, in this case, is just anything outside of yourself. You know, if it's not in your head, it's in the outside world. And as soon as you hear this, you get this idea in your head and you, it, it flips a little switch that starts, I, at least in my case, I started observing when I added new desires. Um, and that's what this next passage is about. And I think they, they go along pretty well together. Desire is a contract you make with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want. I don't think most of us realize that's what it is. I think we go about desiring things all day long and then wonder why we're unhappy. I like to stay aware, aware of it because then I can choose my desires very carefully. I try not to have more than one big desire in my life at any given time. And I also recognize it as the axis of my suffering. I realize the area where I've chosen to be unhappy. End quote. So this, this idea that like, it's so, it's so, so easy to add new desires. Um, and it's probably the, the easiest to, <laughs> to add new desires. If you're scrolling through Instagram, right? Um, you just see all these images of like people having things, usually material things, sometimes experiences. Um, and in 10 seconds of scrolling, you can look at 30 images and in the, in the wrong sprint, in the wrong mindset, you can add 30 new desires in 10 seconds. Like, oh, I want to go to Mykonos. Oh, I want to go to private plane. Oh, I want to like eat that juicy cheeseburger. Um, in my case, that's basically what it is. And it's so pernicious. You don't even realize how quickly you've added desires. Um, and it's just spending this time staring at this abyss, this gap between your life as it is and um, you know, you're just pushing those goalposts of desire farther and farther and farther out. And, you know, of course you're not going to be happy when that's, you know, when your recreation is increasing the size of the gap between your current life and your ideal life. Um, it, like, and you make that your default activity that's going to, uh, that's going to impact your happiness. I think, uh, suffice to say. So there's a lot of, um, kind of smaller prescriptions in the book that are just, um, they're small things. Um, but some of them stick with me that are little happiness triggers, right? Um, Naval tells a story about brushing his teeth and catching himself fantasizing about a future event. And that's a good trigger because we brush our teeth, hopefully twice a day, everybody. Yes. And it's usually a moment where you're not necessarily thinking about anything and your mind tends to wander. Um, and when you have that as a trigger, sometimes that, you know, I have that thought and I remember that quote while I'm brushing my teeth and it brings me back to the like, okay, just appreciate this moment. Um, the other is, uh, is feeling the sun on your skin. You know, when you feel the sun on your skin, just take a moment to like, look up and smile. Um, that's a, a sensation that like resonates in your genes that humans have been enjoying as a source of power and life and health for thousands of years. Um, and it's a way to connect with, you know, yourself and your past and your future and the present. And just, um, you know, when you feel that, that warmth, like take a moment to, to appreciate it and thank the sun and, um, take that moment of peace before you, you move on with your day. I think those are, um, you know, those are little reflexes and habits that you can train into yourself. And, uh, 
carry them with you and and hopefully break some of that constant yearning and uh, creation or obsession over the desires that have wormed their way into your head. Okay, other ideas, um, favorite passages. Uh, I've I've talked about I've talked about accountability um, a little bit uh, before on on some other podcasts, but I think it's a really I think it's a great um, nuanced change from the standard kind of entrepreneurial advice, which is seek risk, right? You always hear entrepreneurs are risk takers. Um, you rarely hear account- entrepreneurs take accountability, uh, but that's really what it is. It's it's not that you're seeking risk. You're not risk maximizing. You're minimizing risk, but you're accountable for the risk that exists. So choosing accountability um, and choosing to be accountable for the risk that exists, all of a sudden your incentive is to minimize it. So rather than thinking about it as seeking risk, um, being willing to take on accountability, which also apply, implies you know, that personal responsibility. Um, it is important, I think, from a like social perspective to being willing to take on personal responsibility because if you're not taking on the downside risk, you don't particularly deserve the upside. Um, you know, you don't you don't get the glory of being a, a battlefield soldier if you were way way back in you know the command center. You know, you worked hard and we appreciate it, but uh, the the medals and the honors go to those who took the risks. And it's the same with entrepreneurship. Um, you know, the the reason and Nassim Tlaib talks about this a fair bit. The reason we despise so many of the bankers who are enriching themselves at the cost of taxpayers and a is because they took on risk. They received the reward, but they didn't receive the downside that should have come with the risk. Um, and they socialized that risk and put that, distributed that to all of the rest of us. And that's a recipe for uh, let's say social disapproval. Um it's a recipe for risking your place in the community uh, and being shunned uh, by the people you rely on and uh, the people around you. So, so don't seek risk, but seek accountability and be willing to take on accountability and under your own name often, although that's changing a little bit, um, and try to minimize that risk once you've, once you've taken it on. Uh, the specific knowledge I love as a, as a formation formulation, because, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people in their pursuit of, of success, just focus on excellence. Um, they just try to be the best. They get into a game and they try to win it. Uh, and the specific, the idea of specific knowledge and the way Naval formulates it, I think it really opens the door to finding value in your uniqueness. So you don't have to be, you can become the best by defining your category. You don't have to choose an established game and win at it. You can invent a new game. And that's led me a little bit to this idea of if you can't be unique, you have to be excellent. If you can't be excellent, you have to be unique. So you, it's on you to kind of look at the game that you're playing and understand to what extent you have to become excellent and to what extent you can become unique. Um, there are usually ways to grow towards a niche in any, in any environment, in any craft, in any trade, in any, uh, career. And there's usually ways to get better, to improve. And you want to mix both of those to the extent that you can. Um, you know, if you're uh, an athlete and you've got to run hundred meters as fast as you can, 
and that's the strict set of rules. Um, you, there's not a lot of room for uniqueness. There's some, you know, you you want to have purple hair and a gold chain and gold shoes. Uh, like, hell yeah, you're going to be more unique. But you do need to be reasonably excellent to make that your your career. You got to be in the best few in the world. Um, so you better be excellent if you're going to choose a game where you can't be unique. Uh, if you can be very unique, you know, if you're a lawyer and you can choose to specialize and specialize and specialize until you're the only lawyer in the world who knows exactly what to do with, you know, French people who win the lottery and you get every call from every French lottery winner um, in the world because you know you're the only person with that expertise and you're so unique that all you have to do is be excellent enough that no one can take that spot from you. Um, so that is a rough framework that I think is really interesting um, and alleviates that the single-minded burden of just like, oh my God, I have to become better, 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 better. Um, no, you can find ways to use your unique talents, insights, experience um, to become more unique. And the combination of both of those is going gonna, is gonna to determine um, a lot about your outcome. Of course, uh, as favorite ideas from the book go, um, you knew I wasn't going to let this podcast go by without talking about leverage. Um, this is an idea I've been obsessing about since I worked on the book, since you've been halfway through working on the book. I think, um, it's probably the most, maybe the most powerful idea in the wealth section of the book. Um, and I think that's, this hasn't really been written about anywhere else um, as cohesively, but I still think this is that chapter, you know, labeled this door and showed us the way and maybe even opened the door for us. Um, but there's so much left to learn and explore. And I'm, I'm now trying to kind of continue that work and like map out everything that's inside that door and um, bring people along and, and carry back and share what I've learned. I think it's a, idea that will define, you know, the next decades, um, in the same way that, you know, compounding, uh, has really defined a lot of the outcomes over the last hundred years. Uh, I think, I think the application of leverage, especially, um, in the digital world, but combining all forms of leverage really is going to continue to define our age. Um, there's so we're in such a unique place where the the whole globe, the whole species is now interconnected. And so many things are now instantly inherently serving a global market. And those who do things the best are going to be able to do them for everyone. And they're only going to be able to serve that global market if they're applying leverage. And it's it's going to produce, it's already producing some truly insane outcomes. And I think people who, um, there's people who are, who are upset or confused or, um, you know, carrying this old model of the industrial world with them and don't know how to wrap their heads around outcomes that are based on leverage. Um, so gathering this mental model, understanding it well, using it to explain what's happening, using it to predict what's going to happen, and using it yourself as, as a playbook um, for how you spend your time and your resources and how you increase your impact. That's really how I see how I see the art of leverage is the art of increasing your impact.
um, doing the work that allows you to do more work. Um, it, so this is um, what I've been exploring in, in a few blog posts on my Twitter, um, trying to kind of flesh out this idea. Uh, built a course and community around this idea and trying to create a shared language for people to start sharing their experiences and their stories and their discoveries and the frameworks that they're using, um, the playbooks that they're using, how they're building leverage, dissecting some other uh, friends' careers um, and examining the big decisions they make in terms of how that adds, lets them add leverage, um, experts in the different forms of leverage. So all of that, um, some of those are coming coming in hot on this podcast and you'll get some, um, within a week or two here of listening to this. So that's really this last idea, um, that I'm just starting to feel like I can unfurl and, um, I might spend years continuing to, uh, study and apply that. So that's a few big ideas from the book. Some of my favorites. Um, I hope that's, it's helpful for you to kind of hear some of that and hear me talk through it. Um, a little extra, extra juice for you. Um, I, I owe many, many thanks to many, many people um, for for making this project a success. I, I deeply appreciate the blind trust from Naval to let a stranger from the internet create a book about him. Um, and Tim Ferriss for um, taking the risk and uh, bending his, his iron rule to uh, write a foreword for us. Jack Butcher for lending his creative genius to all of the illustrations that you see in the book. Um, He's, he's a living example of all the principles in this book. Um, and I've learned a ton from, from him as a friend and, uh, seeing all that he's accomplished, um, is, is really an amazing guy and incredibly nice and hilarious. So, uh, highly encourage following him and, and seeing what he's up to if you haven't already. Um, there's, there's a lot of names in the back of this book. You know, there's only a few on the front, but there's a lot of names in the back of this book, um, that deserve, deserve all the credit. Um, I mentioned Kathleen Martin, my, my editor, um, scribe media did all the design proofreading and, and lent their publishing expertise. So they are really the reason that this is such a professionally published situation. Um, they're like a professional publisher for self-publishing authors, um, which is a very interesting niche and they do really amazing work. Um, to my many, many friends and peers for input and reviews and their, their red, <laughs> very, very uh, red ink marked up uh, drafts. I, I appreciate all of that. And the thousands of people who played a role in the success of this book by, you know, supporting and expressing their excitement, um, by encouraging us, by tweeting, emailing, DMing, slacking, uh, telegramming about this book and to their, their friends and communities and recommending it. It's just so rewarding to see people enjoying the work, sharing it with others, um, gifting it to friends and, and family members and seeing how, you know, this work can play a small role in helping people live the lives they want to live. Um, you know, and I, I don't take any credit for the original stuff. You know, all, all I did was make a jigsaw puzzle out of, uh, the pieces that, that Naval gave us. Um, and it's amazing to see how much value can be created for people by a simple kind of transformation of, of medium. Um, and a little bit of curation. It's uh, something I believe has been valuable, but uh, it still blows me away to kind of see it in real life. So where's this podcast going in the future? Um, well, my favorite my favorite conversations um, are always when I'm laughing and learning at the same time. 
preferably over food, but uh, I'm told that does not come through well on audio. So I'm going to try to bring you laughing and learning conversations. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to people outside the normal kind of guest podcast circuit. Um, You know, I'm not running a talk show. I'm just trying to have some fun and learn some stuff. Um, So I want to bring you along on that journey and uh, make sure we we all enjoy the ride. As far as topics, um, I'm I'm kind of currently exploring and obsessed with with the world of Web3. That's all decentralized finance, NFTs, and the metaverse. Um, I have so much to learn on this, and I'm I'm excited to go talk to people who can teach me about it um, and just blow my mind. I know enough to know that it's crazy, but and and amazing, but not enough to. Uh, I never enough. I never know enough. Um, another another topic um, is just the the need to always be putting money to work um, across a bunch of different things. So that's that might cover angel investing, that might cover permanent equity, real estate, public stocks, um, just capital leverage, baby. How can we how can we put the money to work for us? Um, I definitely am going to keep exploring leverage generally. Um, you know that that art of increasing your impact. I want to talk to successful people. I want to dissect careers. I want to explore tactically um, what are the things people are doing. How are they employing leverage? Um, how are they growing it? How are they compounding it? Um, I mentioned uh, probably with a little too much enthusiasm my obsession for education, um, and I definitely want to talk to some course creators. This this new wave of of practical education that's happening online globally, um, where that can go, the new platforms that are getting created, the new courses, um, you know, where where practitioners are teaching people and having an impact on their careers instantly is is so crazy. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I love to explore the the frontiers of that. And just a, a general sense of having conversations with, with smart friends to see what they can teach me. Um, I'd love to follow along on some journeys. I'd love to run some some crazy experiments. Um, maybe we'll get into some shenanigans and uh, see uh, see what sort of pleasure we can bring to your ears. I thank you for listening to this. Um, I thank you for your support. I'm excited to uh, see you again soon. And let's have some fun together. Have a great day. Catch you later. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.